I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Andrew Rosen, co-founder of Theory, a contemporary clothing company initially for young professional women. Andrew launched Theory in 1997 with his partner, Ellie Tahari, using Lycra as a breakthrough stretch fabric that they incorporated into the company's clothes. Andrew is considered one of the pioneers in the American fashion industry, investing in and mentoring other fashion companies such as Alice and Olivia and Rag and Bone, among others. Welcome. Thank you. A a lot of other companies, too, but... uh, a pioneer, I don't know. Mm. Um, maybe we could say that about my grandfather and my father. Which is exactly where I want to start. Your grandfather was Arthur, and yeah. he came from Russia. Yeah. And he started the Puritan Dress Company in 1910, which basically launched your whole family's lives into the fashion world. He was known he was a good garment cutter. What exactly is a garment cutter? Um, my my grandfather started in the cutting room. The cutting room is the place where um, fabrics are laid out and the pattern pieces of the dresses are laid on top and uh, he cut out the patterns, cut out the pieces. Today it's all done by machinery, but back then it was done by hand and the precision of how it was done, the speed in which it was done, like anything else, uh, there are those that are more skilled than others. The company he founded in 1910 in Waltham, Massachusetts, was called the Puritan Dress Company. I kept thinking as I was learning about you that I'd love to see some of his dresses. And, you know, what goes around comes around. And while it might have been out of style for the last hundred years, there might be a re-emergence of a Puritan dress. I mean, there's this bohemian aesthetic. Um, and You know, I'm not very nostalgic in that way. And so... Um, my father never kept any, or I, I never kept her. Um, you know, I think that maybe maybe my attitude is more always looking to the future instead of mm-hmm. um, instead of dwelling on the past. I don't know whether I ever saw any of the clothes, but he was making and and selling at retail dresses for two ninety nine, three ninety nine. That's two dollars and ninety nine cents, three dollars and ninety nine cents. You know, it was a very different time and a very different era, but. As I look back and see clothes in the 1900s and um, early and mid-1900s, this, they're very inspiring. So your father, Carl, uh, took over the business uh, from Arthur uh, or worked together with his father. And and I feel like the company, Puritan Dress Company, which became Puritan Fashions, kind of was an innovator. Um, it had mini skirts in the 1960s, uh, even cocktail dresses before then, the Gloria Swanson. Um, can you speak to that, like that forward-leaning posture? You know, my dad was always sort of very innovative in terms of what he did and how he did it. He was very flamboyant, and he was the first one. He used to buy designs from the famous French designers and and bring them back and recreate them here. Um, he did a deal with Gloria Swanson. He did a deal with Chris Everett uh, to make tennis clothes. And ultimately, the, 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 the big deal he did in designer jeans with Calvin Klein in the, in the mid-1970s. So my father was always sort of innovating things and trying to evolve and change the way people... Uh, people dressed and looked at fashion. That was always about my er- early life. I remember 
him uh, doing a deal with the Beatles and we'd have all these Beatle t-shirts and Beatle hats and everything back in the 1960s. And you mentioned that, you know, he was innovative and constantly evolving. It seems like he was like that in his personal life, too. Can you speak to his kind of personality outside of work? He was a lot flashier than I was. Um, You know, fancy cars, maybe even a little fancier dressed. I'm a a little more low-key. But he just was larger than life and you know, a character that sort of we rarely see today. And I, I think maybe it went with the times. And he was an incredible person and, and a great um, father to me and such a great friend to so many people. And um, my dad has passed away 35 years now, but there would be frequently people come up to me and say, oh, I remember your dad or your dad did this. or You know, it's really nice to have that memory and that legacy, even though I lost my dad when I was relatively young. In your 20s, um, yeah. I miss him, but there was never an empty feeling. He it just uh, he stayed with me in my life uh, for all these years. And I think part of it is that obviously I followed an industry after him. Um, I also am very interested in thoroughbred racing and breeding, which was also a passion of my dad's. And although I do um, think I'm I'm quite different than my dad. A lot of my interests and a lot of my way of thinking and so on, um, you know, it comes from the same place. There's very little rebellion uh, on your part, it seems. Uh, yeah, just... I was not a rebellious child at all. Mm-hmm. I was the youngest of four children, and I guess I was always sort of hanging around my mom and dad, and, you know, they'd have to take me on trips and so on. My next sister is three years older than me, so mm-hmm. I, I was sort of uh, the baby that was always maybe a little special. Rebellion was not part of mm-hmm. anything I thought or mm-hmm. whatever. What about your mother? My mother was a really fantastic uh, woman, very different than my dad in sort of way. She was she was pretty private, but very eccentric and very creative. And I, I sort of um, picked up from my mom this whole love of the garden and uh, landscaping and the outdoors and so on. A lot of that is what I love to do at, at my home in Southampton or, or here in New York as I'm sort of a serial landscaper that way that I got from my mom. But my mom was very stylish and, you know, had a great sense of style both in her homes and in the way she dressed and, you know, was really a terrific lady. She passed away now three years ago and you know up until the time she passed away I used to speak to her three times a week and mm. what's her name uh, Shirley Rosen mm. in fact all of the my codes on all you know you now need to have codes on everything um, is my the year my mother was born Oh. So I always can remember her. Now I know what to type in on your ATM uh, yeah. ATM machine. <laughs> Instinctively, you were drinking up the, the fashion industry just by being around your father uh, and your grandfather. What are some of your um, most prominent m- memories of you know being with him at work? You know, even before I went to work, I remember running around my, my grandfather's dress factory in, in Waltham and going through the dresses and just experiencing sort of that whole factory part of the business. I remember my dad bringing clothes home and us rummaging through them. And, and I also remember when I was young, my dad would 
always have business people over to the house and just sitting there and observing and and not really understanding what was going on, but just soaking it all in, so to speak. So it's true, like from an early age, um, and I don't think my dad ever, he never wanted me or ever said anything about me going into the business to follow him. In fact, he said quite the opposite. There was some flirtation with becoming a professional golf player. You dropped out of college. Uh, You went to the University of Miami? Yeah, I went to the University of Miami and and a college in in Palm Springs, California, um, basically to play a lot of golf. Was there a, a a pivot moment or a turning point where you said, "Okay, I'm I'm leaving and and I'm joining the business"? It was actually my uncle who said to me one day. Um, I was playing golf with my uncle in California, um, and that's all. Basically, what I was doing was playing golf. I was 19 years old, and my uncle said to me, "When are you when when are you going to get serious and go to work for your father and stop playing golf every day?" That's sort of how that happened. My dad sort of put together an interesting career for me because um, I started working in a knitting mill in Long Island. And um, from there, I went to a, a dress factory in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and sort of got to see the industry from a from an angle that people wouldn't get the opportunity to see mm-hmm. um, today and, 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 and very rarely, and um, learn sort of the way everything worked from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, was able to spend time on the sewing floor with pa- with the pattern makers, with the with the cutters, with the in the warehouse, with the shipping, and and really, you know, understand technically a lot of not only what happens there, but how those people think and how to relate to them. And mm-hmm. so I, I spent like a year and a half doing that, and then um, I came to New York, and and um, it was at the time that my dad had done the deal with Calvin Klein, and came to the New York and worked in the showroom just as a as a sales assistant, really, or a salesperson. It was one of the you know most revolutionary things that happened back in the 1970s, and with the Brooke Shields commercial and all that kind of thing, and so it was just an amazing experience and exposure. I want to speak more about this. Jeans was the sea-changing agent for the business in a way. Puritan did a licensing deal with Calvin Klein that really caused the company's profits to escalate. Can you speak about that? Yeah. Um, my dad had a company that uh, in, in the in the 1970s was doing around $300 million in sales. And every year it would eke out a small profit and uh, was made up of 10 different dress companies and a lot of factories all over the U.S. and, you know, lots of employees and so on. And, you know, it was a good living and a good business, but it wasn't anything special. But in 1976, he did this deal with Calvin Klein. And I think 1977, we started shipping the first jeans. And within three years, my dad had closed down every single business he had, went from like 4,000 employees to 800 employees, no more manufacturing facilities or anything, and and uh, had a company that was doing the same $300 million in sales and making 10 times the profit he was making mm-hmm. the other way. And interestingly enough, and my, my dad said it to me then, and it never registered, and recently it did, is that, you know, he said to me, you're at the forefront of a whole new um, revolution in our industry, designer labeled apparel. Before that, there 
designer identified apparel was not really what was going on in American fashion. Calvin Klein and, and then Ralph Lauren and so on were the were really the pioneers of designers having their own label and owning their own business. It, it really wasn't like that before. It's people like my father that controlled the business. And so I, as I say, I never really, re- never really appreciated or registered with me. And maybe I think four or five years ago, I sort of said, yeah, now I remember my dad saying that. He was right. Uh, in 1982, he got what kind of cancer? My dad had uh, kidney cancer, but he never stopped working till the, till really, really the very end. Um, and really spent as much time as he could preparing me for something that, I mean, frankly, I didn't understand at the time, but was was virtually, you know, a very difficult and impossible situation to prepare me for. So you were 26 when you took over the company, Barry Schwartz and uh, uh, Calvin Klein. They bought your company, in, they bought Puritan in a hostile takeover, and you were there for, for a few years. And then you spent time at Ann Klein as the CEO and divorced from them. But then in 1997... Uh, is sort of like this new era where theory was born. Could you tell me about your encounter with Eli Tahari, who was ultimately yeah, your co-founder? I, I mean, I can sort of tell you a little bit about, you know, even the events that happened before that. I'm very open about my career, and um, I don't believe that success is just a straight line of right. accomplishments. You know, my dad passing and having to take over the company and and ultimately, Barry and Calvin buying the company was what ended up being a good thing. And um, I stayed on and um, worked for for Barry and Calvin for four or five years. And um, you know, I actually was going to leave uh, very shortly thereafter. And I had got a job to run one of Ralph Lawrence's businesses. And uh, I went to the guy that they had brought in um, to run the company, and um, um, I said to him. You know, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave. I got this job opportunity, and he turned to me and he said, "No, you're not going to go anywhere. You're going to stay here with me. Um, you're one of the best things we have here, mm-hmm. and um, um, you're going to run this company again one day." And I, I looked at him and I said, "Are you sure? Have you been reading the press?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "You're going to stay stay with me and work mm-hmm. together with me." And um, mm-hmm. I, I I stayed, and ultimately I. Um, was uh, promoted to running the the company again, and um, I think when that happened, I sort of had a, a different point of view and, and said to myself, I don't have anything more to accomplish here, and um, you know maybe in some ways I wanted to just prove that my dad was right and those guys were wrong, and um, I I I left the company. Um, and interesting, and interestingly enough, I'm still very close friends with Barry Schwartz. And um, when I see Calvin, Calvin and I have a very nice relationship. Anyway, then I got offered the job to be the CEO of Ann Klein. I had known the fellow that that was the part owner of the company. Part part owner of the company was an American guy, and another guy was was Japanese. It was sort of an introduction to what ended up happening in the rest of my life. It was a way that I could get disconnected from um, my family's business and sort of have something that was more my own. And I was there for six years. And and, uh, I suppose that I had had a um, desire to move the company in a different direction. So we had a disagreement and, and they fired me. 
It didn't feel really very good. At the moment, you know, I didn't really appreciate it. But the truth of the matter is that it wasn't the right job for me anymore. And I went off to to really pursue something that was much more authentic to me and to create something that was really my own expression. You started Theory in 1997. Eli Tahari uh, was your partner at the time, and he introduced you to a new material, which really was the material upon which a lot of the uh, company was based. It's Lycra, which is elastic polyurethane, actually. Can you tell me about Lycra and what, what the appeal was for you? I actually met Eli Tahari because when I had left Anne Klein, I had the idea that I wanted to start something on my own, but I didn't know what it was. And then I met Ellie. I was just coming in and advising Ellie on his clothing and his marketing and his merchandising. And he and I got along really great. We understood each other. And Ellie and I decided to start this business. And um, at that time, he was experimenting with a lot of fabrics with lycra and um, he had actually made me a pair of pants. I put the pants on and I said, Ellie, this is the business we're going into. Basically, I wanted to have a company that 100% of its clothes were made with, with fabrics with lycra. And I had this idea that the world was changing. Um, it was just at the beginning of cell phones and the internet and that the office was going to be a much more versatile place. It wasn't going to be a destination anymore is going to be wherever you were and that people needed clothes that were much more versatile than that that weren't so uniformed mm -hmm. and uh, I wanted to make um, a whole line of clothes out of fabric with lycra I wanted them to be individual pieces that could mix and match in a multitude of different ways and that could could be comfortable yet sexy and modern and have a whole different shape and proportion. Why, incidentally, did you name it Theory? Basically, I was originally going to start the company and call it Stretch Theory and came to my senses and realized <laughs> that maybe Stretch Theory was a little limiting you, you, and just, yeah. just wanted to make it Theory. The interesting thing there is that somebody else had the name registered and I happened to know him. I called him on the phone and said, listen, I want to get this name Theory. I don't see you using it. He said, why don't you come over and see me anyway? Um, make a long story short, he said, if you give my my uh, wife and, and daughter some f free clothes, huh. um, you, you know, I'd be it. happy to give you the name for what it cost me to register it. And you should know, in 1997 when you started, I was a recent college graduate, and I would go into your store on Columbus Avenue on the Upper West Side. Right. The clothes were way too expensive for me, but when I could afford a piece... They were my favorite pieces, yeah. just so you know. It's funny that you mentioned the store on Columbus Avenue. My daughter was a teenager at that time, and I remember she was having a bad night, and it was like 11 o'clock at night, and I said, oh, come on, Ashley, I want to take you and show you the store I want to take on Madison Avenue. And I showed her the store on Madison. She said, Dad, why are you taking the store on Madison? Let's. Just, I want to show you the store on Columbus Avenue. And so that's how I ended up taking the store because, you know, my daughter had Ashley. pointed it out to me. Yeah. Anyway, my personal life and my business life were, were totally intertwined at that time. I was raising my kids and, and started the company at the same time. And mm. so my kids had to sort of put up with, uh, with, with, with a lot. What else did they have to put up with or uh, <laughs> uh, contributions did they make? Other you than know, the interesting, I got a CFDA award a few years ago and my kids narrated a video 
about, you know, their perception of their father. And, you know, I remember my son having to say, and daughter, well, we used to spend our Saturdays and Sundays walking through factories or retail stores. And, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, neither one of them ended up in the business. But I think it was a good education for them to understand mm-hmm. um, what it takes to, to sort of really love something and be passionate about it and, and be committed to it. And, you know, both mm-hmm. my kids are committed to what they're doing in life today. Which is? My daughter's a professional CrossFit competitor, and my son is um, is in the music industry. She sort of does what I do, but in the music industry. Which is find good talent and support them. Yes. So you launched Theory with Ellie with this Lycra component and wanting to make contemporary clothes for really young women at the time. At what point did you get a sense that, you know what, this is this is getting traction? I think that starting out, I was always a little nervous, would this really work? You know, I remember waking up in the middle of the night on many occasions and walking around, How you know, how's this all going to come together and work? But pretty quickly, the reaction to the clothes was, was unusual. Although I wasn't confident I was going to stay in business, I was confident I had a business really right away. The first year, we did about $6 million in business. The second year, we did $20 million in business. Once that happened, I sort of knew that there was a future, a big future here, and the response to the clothes was was enough. I didn't need mm-hmm. advertising or anything. That clothes were the best advertisement for the for our company. And did you start with retail stores, or just walk me through the first year or two? You know, it was a very different um, environment back then. The idea of going directly to the consumer was not something that manufacturers or designers thought about. Um, you know, the business at that time was done through you know, major department and specialty stores, and um, we sold all of the best ones. And it was a much more traditional way of of, of starting a business and, and done through department stores. And it gave me the ability to, without a huge investment, be able to scale the business really quickly. And incidentally, the, the industry, you, you alluded to this, was a lot different than it is now, you know, in the 2000s. Um, can you speak as to, like, what some of those differences were? How you'd have to go and check out inventory yourself physically? Or can you talk to us about like, you know, what that landscape was? In, in those days, we didn't have the, the robust digital um, computer support that we have today. I mean, the well, e-commerce didn't exist. The internet was just at the beginning. Um, computers did not have the uh, capabilities or dimension to 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 think the way the way they do now and be a part of the business. So, um, a, a lot of it was done by the by feel, and a lot of it, um, uh, you know, was was done from much of the things that I had learned and working in the factories for my dad or sitting at a conference table listening to my dad. Like to, what? Um, you know, just understanding how to get clothes made. Um, you know, in the in, in those days, I was manufacturing most of my clothes in New York City, and right. I was uh, I, I had to find great manufacturing. In the beginning, That you know, making a thousand pair of pants was easy, but when you had to make 20,000 pair or 50,000 pair, you know, that became a little more complicated. You were acquired by a Japanese company in 2003 called yeah. Fast Retailing or, yeah. or Link Holdings is yeah. their subsidiary. I think that the name and also the, the the font that's used is reflective of the simplicity of and the cleanliness of the fashion, of the, of the design. Japanese aesthetic is kind of reflective of 
you know, like this simple vibe. Like, what is it about the Japanese? Was it just coincidence that that a Japanese company was interested in you? Well, as I told you back in in um, 1989, when I went to work for Ann Klein, the one of the owners of Ann Klein was Japanese. He had a very close friend of his who was actually sort of a mentee of his that was Japanese. His name was Ricky Sasaki, and Ricky and I became really close friends when I was working at Ann Klein. And um, when I left Ann Klein, Ricky was very supportive of me and helpful of me. And he had a he was Japanese living in Hong Kong, had a big manufacturing business over there, and so on. And was really supportive of me, not financially, sort of emotionally, in terms of what I was going through and so on. Ricky sort of, you know, helped me through that. And then Ricky, when uh, 1997 China and and uh, Hong Kong merged, um, Ricky had some financial trouble in Hong Kong and needed to get out of Hong Kong, had a million dollars left, went back to Japan and said, I want to start Theory in Japan. This was 1998. And I said to Ricky, Ricky, go ahead, start Theory in Japan. Don't worry about paying me royalties or anything else. Um, just start your business, concentrate, use all your money to to uh, make your business work and we'll catch up later. As we were building a business in the U.S., Ricky was building his business in Japan. Mm-hmm. It was a separate company, a licensee, and that ultimately was the company in 2003 mm-hmm. um, that bought Theory and partnered with Fast Retailing to, to, to get the money. Um, so Fast Retailing put up the money to buy the company, and, and Ricky and and Misty and I became partners. Isn't it just lovely how happenstance, how, how life kind of takes these accidental turns? Right? Yeah, well, you never know when or where you're meeting someone that's going to change your life. The question is to be open and available and curious enough to be able to explore them. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think one of the things about me is I am very curious and I am open-minded. I mean, frankly, I met my wife because I was open-minded and curious in that. Um, Jenny Dyer. Yeah, my wife sent me a, an email and um, wanted some advice on, she had a fashion company in, in, in England and sent me an email just out, uh, out of the blue. And I said to, saw the email, I said to my assistant, set up a date with her. Mm. And, you know, part of that was what I learned from my my dad, too. Um, you know, you never know where the next good idea is coming from. And so, mm-hmm. anyway, I set up a date. It was a, a date to, in my office. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I that's how I, I, I met Jenny and... Uh, you know, sort of the rest is history there. You seem to have kind of like a Buddhist mentality about things. You keep saying, well, just when you think your luck is down, it actually might not be, uh, you know, an unauspicious moment. And like, were you, did you grow up in a deeply religious household? I mean, your family is Jewish. Yes. Was there any of that at play? Not at all. Yeah. But am I I right in my interpretation of how you... I, I just think that I have a way about me that always tends to look at the opportunity, not the negative side of things. And I've always been that way ever since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think a lot of that was my mother's influence. And I think that I sort of was lucky to get the best of my mother and the best of my father. And I I, I think it's just the way I am. Do you wish your your dad could see what you've built? It's an interesting thing because as a... (laughs) Um, I was at the doctor, the my back doctor the other day, and my back doctor was talking about medians, hmm. and that he went to a median. And what's and a median? A median is a psychic. 
Oh, okay, go ahead. And anyway, I was thinking to myself, oh, it would be great if I could go to a median and they could, I could speak to my father. I don't think of things that, well, my dad would be proud of me or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I, I think at the end of the day, I have to be satisfied and fulfilled with what I'm doing. And, you know, my motivation is to really do the right thing and to be authentic to who I am and, and um, what I believe in. What might I not know about you if, if you if you don't tell me? Just even in like your mundane life, like the foods you like to eat or what you do you have I a mean, daily ritual with your family about, or the thing I don't about know. me is I like a routine. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, this is my wife was a great um force in my life because she gave me a lot of grounding. Um, you know, in some ways I can wander around and do lots of different things and get pulled in lots of different directions because I am very curious and I am sort of very available and accessible and sometimes I, you know, maybe take on a little more than um, what I should. And, you know, I, I like a routine and I... So what I, does it look like? Monday through Friday, I work really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, my focus is on that. And, what uh, about exercise? Like when you uh, say routine, I exercise. I exercise every morning at seven thirty. What do you do? Um, uh, two days a week, uh, I do yoga, and three days a week in the gym, mm-hmm. um, all in my apart my house. Um, before that, I get up and I sort of go through all my horse racing stuff. Speak to my trainers in England or. Um, my trainers in America because horse racing happens really early. So I do all my horse racing stuff early and um, go to the gym and mm-hmm. get ready for work. And when I'm finished with work, work is gone. There's no mm-hmm. more work. I have a lot of outside interests. Um, I love to play golf and I play golf every Friday, Saturday, Sunday in the summer. And frequently after the golf, I come home to the house, have lunch with, with my wife and, and uh, all. And then I go fishing. Um, and I, I love to fish, and I have a couple of ponds on the property, feed the fish, and just have a really nice sort of serene life for the weekend. Then I can be sort of fresh for the week, but I don't start thinking about work really until I'm um, sometimes Sunday night, most of the time Monday morning. It's striking that you're you're so plugged in during the week and that the things that appeal to you outside of your professional life are actually s- not static, <laughs> but, but golf. God, I can't think of a slower game or fishing or gardening. What is the appeal of horse racing? You know, that How was... How many horses do uh, you have? Uh, 60 some, 62 or three. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like fashion. It's, you know, I breed horses and race them and and sell them, buy them. It's sort of the idea of trying to find the next winner, you know, the next good item. It's very much like that, you know, finding a good horse. you got to work really hard to find them. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, we got through the hour. Mm. You didn't even get half the stuff on your list. (laughs) Thank you. My guest has been Andrew Rosen, co-founder of Theory. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.